Good morning. I'm Lori Wiley. Today's scripture comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? This is the word of the Lord. So question, what gives you the assurance of a promise that was extended to you. What do you think of? Think of a piece of paper, maybe a signed contract. Maybe you think of a handshake because you probably knew the person who made the promise. In ancient Israel, at least at one point in the history of Israel, the exchange of property promise concerning the release of property and purchase of property, it was actually done with a sandal. So you would take off your sandal and hand it to the other person as surety, as the promise. I don't know what you think of when you think of a secure promise. But what we know in this passage is that there is a promise that has been extended to us through Jesus Christ. A promise that applies right now, already, and a promise that applies to the future, not yet. The passage we read this morning explicates that in a variety of ways. It begins this way. It says, you and I, as Christ followers, are justified by faith. Here was our status before we were justified, which means to be at peace with God, which in large part is what everybody longs for, to be at peace with God. Before you were at peace with God, before you were justified, there were a few things that were characteristic of your existence. The first thing that was characteristic of your existence was that you were powerless. 
There was no way for you to earn peace on your own, to be justified. The second thing, you, we, were ungodly. We were not like God, as a matter of fact, and we weren't even inclined towards God. Our inclinations were away from God before we were justified, before we had peace with God. The third thing Paul says is that we were all sinners. That is, we were held captive by our own sins, by our own internal destructive nature. And finally, Paul says, we were actually enemies of God. If that wasn't enough, those three deficiencies, there was something else going on. It was, it was an internal rebellion against God. We wanted peace with God, but we didn't want God. Because we wanted peace with God on our own terms. Paul says, that was your condition, but now you have been justified by faith. How have you been justified by faith? Well, through faith. But you've been justified by faith because of the grace of Jesus Christ. We have received grace, Paul says. Not because we deserved it, but precisely because we did not deserve it. That's why we've received grace. When you think about grace, the, the, the notion of the gospel and grace, it seems that frequently there are two extremes in terms of understanding grace. The one is that we don't think we deserve it. And somehow we just can't get over that fact. Another extreme is to say that we do deserve it. And if we're there on that extreme, we don't even understand grace. Because if we think we deserve it, we don't get it at all. You know what's interesting about both of those extremes? They come from the same source. They come from the source that says, I've got to earn it somehow. I earned it and now I deserve it. I can never earn it, so I give up on it. Many years ago, um, a pastor that hardly anybody's ever heard of, Chuck Swindoll, um, said he was teaching a Bible class. Um, and he was relatively young as a pastor. And he was teaching this class. And there was about 70 people in the Bible class. And he said, because so many people in this Bible class uh, were either new in faith or hadn't come to faith, he said, I decided I was going to focus on the gospel of grace, the words of Jesus and, and the words of Paul concerning the grace of the gospel. And he said, so about seven weeks into the study, I decided I would do what a good teacher does and get an assessment. And he said, so my assessment was this. Are, are they really getting what I'm trying to say? He gave each of them a three by five card, passed it out. And he said, I want all of you with one sentence or, or maybe two 
give a definition of the gospel. He said, I collected all of them, and there were five right answers. Five. In other words, five people said it was by the grace of God. And 65 or more people didn't get the grace at all. He said, at first I was devastated. I thought to myself, I'm an awful teacher. But much later I realized it's within our human nature somehow. It's in our world. It's the air we breathe that we must earn it. And the notion that we do not deserve it, but still receive it is just beyond our understanding. So we try to figure out another way. There's a third thing that Paul says concerning us in this passage. He says, because we're justified by grace through faith, we're now saved from the wrath of God. Not a very popular topic nowadays. The wrath of God we want to dismiss because we think it's uncomfortable. It's unpopular. It puts God in the role of a sovereign dictator who just wants to punish, which of course is not true. If we're going to do justice to the scripture itself, we cannot, hear me carefully, my friends, we cannot avoid the doctrine of God's wrath. It's there. Like it or not, it's there. I would like to divide the wrath of God in terms of our understanding into two categories. One I'll call the direct wrath of God. And it's pretty clear where most of the references to the direct wrath of God come from, right? In the Old Testament. It seems that God's wrath is poured out on people. Just last week, we were uh, doing what we call the dig sessions around here with our uh, young children, preparing them for baptism, preparing them for communion. And Lee and I always share the story of uh, the 10 plagues in Egypt. And Lee is telling the story of the 10 plagues and I'm supposed to do the transition of the Lamb of God in communion and all that kind of thing. And Lee is telling the story of the 10 plagues. And I'm thinking to myself, I, man, this sounds harsh. I mean, and Leah is just an absolute sweetheart. If anybody can say it nice, Leah can. But it just didn't sound nice at all. God was smiting millions of people with all kinds of plagues. And it wasn't a part of the natural order. It was the proactive, decisive punishment of God upon people. It was the wrath of God. Now later some plagues we find are directed towards the people of God. Again, in a direct, proactive way. As a matter of fact, one of the most stunning ones is 
when Aaron and Moses were trying to lead the people across the desert. And a group of individuals got stirred up because of a man called Korah. Korah basically fomented a rebellion against Aaron and Moses. I mean, the whole thing was about to fracture. It was going to fall apart. There was going to be a revolution. And God said to Moses, I want you to tell the people who will listen to step back from the tents of Korah because something awful is about to happen. The story is, it wasn't natural. God, it said, opened up the earth and swallowed the rebellious people. Well, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? But it's real. Who am I to question God's judgment? I'm not anyone to question God's judgment, but on occasion when I'm angry, I do. Don't you? But there's another kind of wrath of God. That's the active, direct wrath of God. Another part of the wrath of God that's clearly delineated in a variety of places, especially in the New Testament, is what I'll call the consequential wrath of God. That is to say, in the words of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The consequence of sin is death. That's why we die. Insert Jesus into the picture and it makes a lot of sense. There's another consequential wrath of God that's described for us in Romans chapter 1 verse 24 in particular. It says that God finally just turned them over to themselves. He basically said, okay, I'm out. Have it your way. Because the natural consequences of sin are death. The natural consequences of sin are a disaster. The natural consequences of sin is the destruction of shalom. The destruction of human flourishing. That's what sin does. And God said, okay, I'm stepping out. In other words, destroy yourself. You know, both of them are scary, but I got to admit the second one scares me more. Because if you and I are honest and know our own hearts as well as we ought to, we understand that we are our worst enemy. We gravitate towards things we should not. And we know that the gravitation towards those things which we should not do and should not be causes pain in our lives And if God steps back and says, have at it, that's scary. So Paul says we're saved from wrath, whether direct or consequential wrath. Why are we saved from wrath? Because Christ took the wrath 
of sin for us. We were enemies of God. And that's what's amazing. He took the wrath for the enemies of God. Many of you uh, pick up a little devotional back there called Daily Bread. A number of years ago, there was a story in Daily Bread, that devotional reading that was about a man called Peter Miller, who was a minister during the Revolutionary War, and an enemy of his. And what I mean by an enemy is that this guy was always degrading Peter Miller. He actually persecuted Peter Miller's church. He did everything he could to bring him down short of death. He was vile. And then during the Revolutionary War, Peter Miller's enemy was charged with treason. Now, you know what being charged with treason meant, at least back then, you were going to die. When Peter Miller heard that his enemy had been charged with treason, he went directly to George Washington, the general of the forces who had charged him. And it was a long trip. And he arrived to see General Washington and he pled the case of this person that had formerly persecuted him and continued to. And the story goes that George Washington looked at him and he said, I I don't think I can give a pardon to your friend. And Peter Miller said, oh, you don't understand. He's not my friend. He's my mortal enemy. And George Washington looked at him and he said, oh, that changes things. And he wrote him an absolution in his own hand, stamped the letter and Peter Miller raced off to the place where this man was going to be hanged. And as he arrived in the crowd, public hangings were something that happened a lot. As he arrived in the crowd, the man who was to step onto the gallows looked at him, Peter Miller, the minister, and said, there he is, my enemy comes to see my last day. This is his revenge. He was shocked when Peter Miller ascended to the executioner and handed him a pardon from George Washington. We were enemies of God. And Christ stepped in and took the wrath for sin upon himself. Not because we were friends. Not because we deserved it but because we did not. Paul goes on to say, we now have a sure hope. 
That hope is secured in Jesus Christ, the faith we have in Christ. That hope is shaped, get this, that hope is not just secured. The hope is shaped through tribulation. Through endurance and trials, we move to a solid character. And that solid character through those trials produces an overwhelming hope. And the grace of God and the future that we have with God. It's not only shaped through trials. It's not only because of faith in Jesus Christ. It is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just some sort of promise with a sandal. It's a promise that says, I died, I defeated sin, and you will live forever because I took care of it. It's grounded in the resurrection. That's our hope. It was his blood that justified. And it was accomplished while we were still enemies of God. Reading this week, I, I ran across a quote by a guy I have enormous respect for, John Stott. And in looking at this passage, he said, here's the logic. If God has already done the difficult thing, that is dying for us when we were his enemies, can we not trust him to do the comparatively simple thing by completing the task? Do you see what's already happened? You're an enemy of God. Your sins were killing you. You were under the wrath of God. And Christ said no. And he did it with the signature of his own blood. If he did that, how much more will he say you're justified in the end? Of course he will. You know, this news, I mean, this good news that Paul's proclaiming, it was absolutely radical, completely revolutionary in his day for any number of religions, but just for the religion that Paul had trained in, it was radical and revolutionary. Because in the rabbinic tradition, this was true, that justification... And condemnation took place at the end in the final judgment. You could have no surety of your justification until the final judgment. Do you understand how radical it is for Paul to say in the words of Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Right now, says Paul, and it's the surety of things to come. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. We don't have to trust in our own righteousness. There's therefore now no condemnation.
The promise, it's secured by the words and the action of Jesus. Salvation has already happened, but we're not yet fully justified because the final day hasn't arrived. We're not condemned. We have peace with God. And the verse that follows uh, our reading, verse 11, which I left out, says it this way. Not only is this so, all that you just described, but we also boast other translations say exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have received reconciliation. Accomplished in the actions and the words of Jesus. Something to rejoice about. So there's so many things to say, but I, as I thought about it, I want to just focus on one thing. It's by grace. It's by grace. So stop striving. It's by grace. So stop worrying. It's by grace. So relax in God's love. You don't need to be anxious. The promise is secure. And someday, this already will be finally completed. The not yet will go away. We'll have perfect peace with God and with others. Man, what a day that's going to be. We will have perfect restoration of the created order. Wow, what a day that's going to be. And we will be in a place where human flourishing will be the norm because sin and death have been destroyed. In the words of Paul in another place in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, your, um, your grace is overwhelming. It's really hard to believe. Somehow it just seems impossible. But it's true. 
And the promise that has been given to us has its surety, its warranty, its guarantee in what you have already done. You've called us by your grace. You've defeated sin and death in your body and you rose again. And we're just waiting for that final redemption, Lord. We long for it. We hope for it. So as we walk, shape our hope, Lord. Give us confidence. And may we relax and rest in your love. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.